That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning as we look at these events of the resurrection. And one of the things I want us to grasp this morning is that as we think about the resurrection, the resurrection isn't just a remarkable event, though of course it is at least that, but actually it's an event which brings in a whole new age. Now, we often mark history in um, distinct ages that we talk about, so lots is made of the fact that we're in a digital age at the moment. Actually, Clerkenwell was very significant in the Industrial Revolution and bringing in the Industrial Age. The clock we have on the wall behind is made by the oldest clockmaker in the world because Clerkenwell was at the centre of clockmaking in the Industrial Age. And now we live so-called in the Digital Age. And with it, it's brought new advancements, uh, new technologies, and in some ways, everything has changed. Uh, when you sometimes talk to people who lived before the digital age, and you ask them how they find it now living in the digital age, of course, for those of us who've grown up in it, we kind of know no different. They'll often talk of it being a kind of dizzying experience, the rate of change going so fast, as though it's slightly disorienting. Uh, I remember my grandmother um, when you know, the kind of digital age came in, she decided that she needed to get a computer. Now, my brother and I are reasonably computer literate, and she was kind of struggling with this computer. One of the problems she particularly had was she insisted on ascribing to the computer a personality. And so one day I got a phone call from her, you know, moaning about the fact that she couldn't get the computer to work, and she said, he's just being very disobedient. Now, I kind of, it was very endearing, and I said to her, Granny, the first thing we need to get with computers is that they're, they're not persons. It's just a thing. She said, I know that, Pete, of course, but you try telling him that. He just won't believe me. I mean, that kind of rate of change. Now, I wonder if you've ever been traveling and you've had the experience of jet lag. You, you arrive in a different time zone, and your body clock is still on the previous time zone. And so you wake up in the middle of the night feeling like it's, it should be the middle of the day, but everything around you is dark. You feel dizzy, you feel disorientated. Well, one of the problems if we don't get the age we are in is that we can feel a kind of historical jet lag, a sense of not fitting with the realities that are going on around us. And so as Matthew writes this resurrection account, he wants us to understand that we are in a new age, the great age, the age of the resurrection. So let's look firstly and see that as Matthew tells this story, he wants us to see that a new age has dawned. Look down at Matthew 28, verse 1, on page 1000, if you've shut your Bibles. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going through the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow." So Matthew, as with all the other gospel writers, names this as the first day of the week. Now, on one level, it was the first day of the week. It was the day after the Sabbath. But on another level, including that extra detail after the Sabbath on the first day of the week really is superfluous. It's not needed. Because just saying it was the day after the Sabbath tells you what day of the week it was. So he's adding in this extra detail of saying it's the first day of the week. Because he wants us to see that it is bringing in a new age. Unless you think I'm making too much of that, notice the details of the earthquake and the way that the angel is described as having an appearance like lightning. These are kind of apocalyptic imagery. Now, when we use the phrase apocalyptic, we tend to think of destruction and the end of all things. But in Greek, the word apocalypsos means to reveal, to disclose. So the imagery is there to help us understand that something is being revealed to us. 
And actually, Matthew, in chapter 24, if you keep a finger in on page uh, 1,000, just turn back a few pages to Matthew 24, verse 6, which is on page 993. Jesus has described in Matthew 24 how earthquakes and lightning are signs of a new age coming in. So, Matthew 24, verse 6, Jesus says this in the temple discourse. You will hear of rumors, of, sorry, of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Well, you might say birth pains of what? Jesus is saying birth pains of a new age. He says that when you see earthquakes, when you see these kind of apocalyptic things happening, lightning and things like that, then you will know that a new age is dawning. And so Matthew gathers together the imagery around the resurrection, saying the resurrection brings in this new age. A new age has dawned. Now, so what you might say, okay, that all sounds very interesting. So Matthew thinks a new age has come in. Why, do we, why should we be concerned with that? Well, imagine you were talking to someone before the digital age came in, and you knew about the technologies that were going to come in. And so you said to them, look, an age is coming very, very soon, when you will be able to sit on one side of the world, and you'll be able to have a face-to-face -face conversation with someone on the other side of the world in an instant like that. How would a person have responded then? They'd have said, no way, you can't do that. It takes, takes hours to travel, to fly, to go and see someone. What, an, a face-to-face -face conversation with someone on the other side of the world, just like that? We're so used to it today, right? Skype, FaceTime, Hangouts, whatever you want to call it. So many different ways of doing it, and we can do that. We lose the wonder of it because we're so familiar with it. But before the digital revolution, the digital age came in, such technology would have been thought impossible. Or imagine saying to someone, you won't need to go to libraries anymore because you will have all the information of the world just on a screen and you can access it in a click of a button. No way. You see, when a new age comes in, new paradigms come in, paradigms that before we think are almost unbelievable. Now, this is so significant because when you talk to people about the resurrection, I remember back to when I was 22 and I wasn't a believer. When I was faced with the claims of the resurrection, I just said, that's just ridiculous. People don't rise from the dead. You're expecting me to believe that someone who was dead for three days rose to new life and walked around physically and that people interacted with him and he's never going to die again? That's the claim? You believe that? No way. But that's the point. Of course it's improbable. When a new age dawns, if this is the great new age, it brings in a whole new paradigm. Things that were thought impossible before are now suddenly possible. Things which we would say, no way, become the new normal. Because the claim of the resurrection isn't just that it's remarkable that Jesus himself rose from the dead, but the claim is that because he rose from the dead, all who trust in him will rise from the dead in the same way. It's the new normal. And you might be saying there, no way, things don't like happen like that. That's the point. Or think 30 years ago, when the world record for the 100 meters was 9.92. If you'd said, one day there's going to be a guy, he'll be very, very tall, and he'll run sub 9.6 very, very soon. No way. Sprinters are compact and squat, and no one runs is going to knock 0.3 off a world record when it's only in 10 seconds, right? And now we know the new normal. 
That's the point. So if you're here and if you're a guest, it's great you're here. But if you're saying about the resurrection, no way, things don't happen like that. You can't expect me to believe in that. Can I say, you're trying to do philosophy, but you need to do history. History, because these are historical accounts. Matthew was an eyewitness. And look at the evidence that is marshaled to try to convince us. We get times and dates, the first day of the week. We get people, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. These accounts were in wide circulation within a generation. So you could find these people and ask them or ask people who knew these people. We get descriptions of the people who are there. And it's significant that women are claimed to be the first ones. Because if you were making this up, you would never claim in the first century that a woman was the first eyewitness. Because in a patriarchal society, a woman's testimony wasn't even considered admissible in court without being corroborated by a man. Notice there are no men here to corroborate it initially. So that's a terrible way to make up a lie. You're undermining your own credibility. It rings true. And then you get physical interaction. Look at verse 9. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Do you see they touch him? I mean, at what point do you stop saying that it's a legitimate hypothesis to say it's a hallucination? When you're grabbing his gritty feet, or one of the other appearances where they have boiled fish with him, and when they're doing the washing up afterwards, still claim it's a hallucination then? Jesus appeared to his disciples over a month-long period in many different ways with physical interaction over hours at a time. You can't hallucinate about that. No, Matthew claims this is history, and Matthew claims that a new age has dawned. Well, as we look at this and see that a new age has dawned, I want us to secondly see why this matters so much, because this is a new age where everything sad comes untrue, a new age where everything sad comes untrue. Uh, in literature, a catastrophe isn't just something which is very, very bad, though it's at least that, but in literature, technically, a catastrophe is a downward turn, that's what it literally means, a downward spiral. In Greek tragedies, it's the climax of the play where all that has been kind of put together, suddenly the great tragedy comes about and everything unravels. This great downward turn, downward spiral happens. Well, J.R.R. Tolkien, who knew a thing or two, as you know, about writing stories, likes to talk about the way that our favorite stories had in them what he coined a eucatastrophe. You from the Greek word for good or happy, in other words, a happy catastrophe, where things don't unravel but there's a great turnaround that suddenly puts everything back together. That's why he made The Lord of the Rings, that great story, all about that great sudden turnaround where everything that is sad comes untrue. I've been uh, looking back at this, one of my favorite books, but I hadn't actually read it for years, and so I'd forgotten exactly where this part happens, but it happens on the field of Cormallan, and it's after... They have thrown the ring into the fire of Mount Doom. I'm sorry if I've just given the spoilers away, but where have you been for the last few years? <laughs> and as we look at this, Sam and Frodo are lying in disbelief on the field of Cormallan. And they say this, What's happened to the world, Gandalf? A great shadow has departed, he said. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. He himself burst into tears, then as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring, and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased, and his laughter welled up, and laughing he sprang from his bed. 
with wonderful joy of the great turnaround when everything sad comes untrue. It's wonderful when you read a story to a young child and at that moment when, I don't know, the sleeping beauty is kissed and she suddenly rises and the, the curse is lifted from the land or when the beast loses his ugly form and he suddenly is turned back to a prince and with a child their pupils dilate and they say, Daddy, is it true? And you know there's a child in you where you want to say, yes, those are the stories I love. And here's the question, is it true? Will there one day be a great turnaround such that everything sad comes untrue? Matthew wants us to see in the resurrection that that is the moment. When Jesus rises from the dead, we can now be confident that everything that has unraveled in this world will one day be put back together. Let me show you three key areas that he wants us to see. The first one is that death and fear will be defeated. Death and fear will be defeated. Look down at verse 5. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he laid. He says, do not be afraid. And in fact, this gets repeated time and time again. When Jesus appears to his disciples as resurrected Christ, he all the time says, do not be afraid. Why is he saying that? Well, because the claim is that death has been defeated. And if I can put it like this, death isn't just an enemy. Death is the great enemy. And death is the great enemy that gives power to all our other enemies. So think of other enemies we face, cancer. We don't really fear cancer. We fear the death that cancer will bring. Death is giving power to cancer. I don't like heights. I don't really fear heights. I fear falling to my death. <laughs> I think a very rational fear, but I don't want to give it to you. Other people fear loss. Well, we don't really fear loss. We fear losing something and not having the time to find it before death means that time has run out. In some ways, every fear we have is empowered and underpinned by the great fear, the fear that humanity has of death. Death is the great enemy. And I know as I say that, some of you here are remembering a death very close to you, very acutely. The great message of the resurrection is that death is defeated. And this is not some form of British stoicism, you know, stiff upper lip and just try and make it true. It's not an exercise in escapism as though we tell each other nice platitudes that we know don't hold any weight in the real cut and thrust of life. Look at where the ladies are. The women are at a tomb. They're engaging with reality. They're not disengaging with reality. It doesn't get any more gritty than this. They've gone to anoint a body. They've got the spices there. They're in the place of death in the half-light of the new morning, feeling fear. And at that moment, hope breaks in. You see, the resurrection is a confrontation with the enemy of death. Joy and hope in the face of darkness and despair, that's the resurrection. And if it's true that death is defeated, then in the nicest possible way, what are you afraid of? That is why death, when it's defeated, is taunted in the Bible. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? If you remove the sting of death, you remove all fear, which means you can live with boldness and confidence and joy. I don't know if you've been to a, um, an airport recently waiting for someone, and as you're waiting for people to arrive, you see other people greeting. It's um, you know, infectious, isn't it, when you see people, even after only a week or a month away, and the joy as they greet one another. And then you get to see the person you're looking forward to greeting. And, you know, if you're British, you give them a handshake. But if you're anyone else, you give a normal hug. And you're really happy. And there's joy. The happy reunion. 
oh, my friends, if that's what it's like when you see someone after only a week or a month, what do you think the reunions will be like in the new creation when those we have loved who have died in the Lord are raised to new life and we greet them for that first time on that first day of the new age and as we greet them, we know that we'll never have to say goodbye again. You say, well, that's too good to be true. No, it's not. That's the point. The claim here is it's so good that it is true. It's as true and as certain as the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death and fear are defeated. Secondly, heaven breaks into our reality. Look at verse 2. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Again, you could read this and you could say, well, this is just improbable. An angel, someone who looks like lightning, rolling back a hefty stone to give access to the tomb, this doesn't happen. Not in the old age it doesn't, but in the new age, heaven breaks into our reality. That's the point. Heaven breaks in. And please understand properly the Christian hope here. The Christian hope is not that we are whisked away to some alternative reality where we kind of sit on clouds playing harps in our 90s. Please don't envision me in a 90 right now. That is not the reality. The claim of, the, of Christianity is that a new creation, this world made new, heaven breaks in. Heaven transforms all of this in the twinkling of an eye. Everything good about this world, nothing bad. Everything that's joyful and hopeful and good and right and noble and true, but never marred, never spoiled. Have you ever been on holiday and you've been in the most glorious place and then you, it hits you like a, a sledgehammer that the worst thing about this place is you, because you are your own greatest problem. You want to enjoy it, but you end up arguing with the people you love. You think it's a wonderful place, but you feel a sense of dissatisfaction, even though there's nothing wrong with it. What would it be like when we are made new as well? Oh, that day when heaven fully and finally breaks in. And this gives hope now. It gives hope to you. Hope not placed in humanity that we are going to make this world a better place, but hope placed in the only source of hope, the God of hope, that he will make this world new. Make poverty history, humanity will never do it, but Jesus can do it. And maybe some of you are here and saying, I long to change, I long to be better, I long to be different. I'm trying to kick that addiction, and I can't. I'm trying to throw away that negative pattern of behavior. I've tried, I've made many resolutions, but I can't. You can't. But if heaven breaks into your life, you can. That's why there's hope. Hope not in yourself. Hope in Jesus Christ, the one who rose from the dead. Death and fear are defeated. Heaven breaks into our reality. And lastly, all of God's enemies are defeated. All of God's enemies are defeated. Look at verse 4. The guards were so afraid of him, this angel, that they shook and became like dead men. You would have seen in our reading, verses 11 to 15, how there's this elaborate plot to try to discredit the resurrection. It actually starts a bit earlier in verse 62 of chapter 27, just on the bottom of the um, column before, when the chief priests go to Pilate and they say that we've heard rumors that, you know, he's planning to rise again. And we don't think, of course, it's going to happen. We think the disciples are going to come and snatch the body. So post a guard, a battalion of Roman soldiers on the grave to stop it happening. In other words, they do everything they can to stop the resurrection happening. 
And at that time, the Roman Empire was the most feared empire on the world. It lasted for 500 years. The Roman soldiers finally trained, finally honed fighting machines. The disciples had no chance. How difficult is it for Jesus Christ to overcome them? Look at verse 4. The guards, we don't know how many, but probably quite a few, were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. It's all over. In an instant, Jesus is victorious. One of the great themes of the resurrection is that because Christ rises from the dead, he is the victorious king, and all of his enemies will be defeated. No one can stand against him. And the resurrection is the most powerful proclamation of that reality. We are doing a strange thing in our current day and age. A number of us gathered here in a religious building, in a so-called secular age, being told that we are increasingly the minority. And yet, if you know anything about global history, you'll know that the church has been growing steadily and spectacularly over the last two millennia. You'll know that Christianity is the most numerous religion on the world, in the world at the moment. You'll know that more people convert to Christianity um, from position of being against uh, that worldview than it converts to any other religion. Christianity is growing because Jesus Christ claims that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he is victorious. And he defeats the Roman guards like that. And at that time, if you said the Roman Empire will be gone in a couple of hundred years, you would say, no way. And the church will endure. You'd say, what church? And now here we stand 2,000 years later. The Roman Empire came and went. The kingdom of God endures forever. And in 2,000 years' time, if the Lord Jesus Christ hasn't yet returned, the church will still be advancing because Christ is victorious. This is the new age. Death and fear are defeated. Heaven breaks into our reality, and Christ is victorious. If you believe in these things, rejoice. Rejoice. Look at the women as we close. Right at the end, verse 9. Jesus came to meet them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The joy that they must have experienced, the wonder, the questions they had, and yet it was all gloriously true. Well, feel the joy, feel the wonder. If you have questions, please ask your questions. But Christ is risen, the new age has dawned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful reality we celebrate this morning as we come through Easter week, as we remember the events of that first Easter, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, his death, and then gloriously today, his rising to new life. How we praise you that these things are true. And because they are true, all who trust in Jesus Christ will one day experience the risen reality of standing with him and all who have died in him in the faith. So we commit ourselves to you. Give us joy. Give us hope. If we've got questions, give us answers and resolution to those questions we pray. Might we celebrate that Christ is risen. We pray it for his name's sake. Amen.